0: the following message is from temple bible church for more information about the church and its ministries visit www.templebiblechurch.org if you would open your bibles or turn on your apps to acts chapter one this morning we'll be looking at verses 12 through 26 uh, before we do that just a couple of quick things first of all uh, many of you have said in the larger church, how do we get involved in the small groups you guys are always promoting, always talking about? Tonight at 6 o'clock, Connections. It's an opportunity for you to find out about small group ministries, how to be involved in those. Secondly, uh, many of you have great marriages and you want to keep those marriages getting better. Uh, some of you have really difficult marriages and you want them to be helped. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand to which category you've into, but I will let you know Intimate encounters is a great class for either situation and it does begin next Sunday. There are many other opportunities in here you can take a look at. The confetti and party hats you see in front of you, uh, thank you for giving. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, as I told you about uh, three weeks ago, well, we started two weeks ago, actually, uh, there are refugees headed to our sister church. We helped build a camp for our sister church for kids. With winter coming, there's no heat in the camp. We needed heat. We needed 4000 bucks, and we just asked you to give towards that. We said any excess would go towards uh, food or clothing. As of yesterday, over $10,000 had been given to meet that need. So. You know, to me there are a lot of hallmarks. Folks asked me about T B C and said, you know, how have y'all grown to be such a large church and a small community and, and what are some of the hallmarks? One of the hallmarks is the generosity of this body. Many of you are new to this body. How many of you knew in the last three years? T B C has become your home just in the last three years? Raise your hands up, let me see them. There we go. Gosh, bunch of you. Welcome, welcome. We're glad you're here. But uh, one of the hallmarks of T B C is the generosity of this body. When there is a need, the need is always met. Always has been, and we pray God's work done in God's way will never want for his supply. In fact, in the 33 years we've been here... The giving has proceeded, or the giving of the previous year, uh, the preceding year, has always uh, been uh, greater in the next year. So for 33 years, all but one year, 2008, we've exceeded the previous year's income through your generosity. And that's an amazing statistic. And in 2008, it was only 1% behind, which wasn't a whole lot of dollars. But the reality of it is every year, your generosity has increased year by year by year. And we say, to God be the glory, great things he's done. Amen? Amen. Acts chapter. One. We're going to finish up Acts one and look at uh, Pentecost next week. The church is unfinished. We're going to be about unfinished business. Uh, Christ's work was finished, but the work of the church is unfinished. Okay? Bev said, I need to clarify that last week. Got it, babe? We got it. Okay. Uh, we're gone to sleep, and she said, "Did you say the work of Christ is unfinished?" No, the work of Christ is finished, but the work of the church is unfinished. Okay? And so there we are. I think she fell asleep in my sermon last week. Actually. Replacing a Betrayer. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Replacing a Betrayer. They returned, this is verse 12, to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter, John, James, and all the disciples. And then in verse 14, uh, these all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, and at this time, who do you think would stand up of all the disciples and start teaching? Peter. So at this time, Peter stood up. There was a gathering of about one hundred and twenty people. And somebody asked me, "Is that all the believers in the first century?" No. Remember, these are the believers gathered in Jerusalem. There are a number of believers at the Sea of Galilee, scattered around where Jesus' ministry was. In Acts, I am sorry, in First Corinthians fifteen, it says Christ appeared to over five hundred people. So it was still small, but more than 120 500 plus. And, and Peter said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested him. And the scripture said, look at verse 20, uh, he, it was written in the, Psalm, in the book of Psalms, let his houndstead be made desolate, let no one dwell in it, his office let another man take. And so they needed to fulfill the prophecy that had been told of Judas that another man had to take his place, and they needed another apostle. So in verses 21 and 22, we read of the qualifications. Look at verse 22. Uh, this person had to be with them beginning with the baptism of John until the day Christ was taken from us, one that should be, become a witness with us of the resurrection. So they put two men forward, one guy named Joseph, another named Matthias. They prayed their prayers in verse 24. And then in verse 26, they rolled the dice. That is, they cast lots for them, and uh, the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Father, as we look at the uh, job description and the replacement of Judas, God, we recognize that uh, it's a tremendous privilege to serve as one of your apostles. And I pray now that as we look at the word and understand the word, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that is quick to obey. In the name of Jesus, amen. They had to replace Judas disciples had to find someone to do his job fortunately they had two good men to choose from in today's economy in today's society finding a good person to do a job can be difficult uh, we are talking about that yesterday. One of my friends and I over breakfast, How it's difficult sometimes to find the right person, to do the right job in the right way. And uh, it's true in our day and age. Uh, a lot of you uh, work around folks who are thinking, gosh, I don't know how they got that job. I don't know if they can keep with that job. And a lot of us uh, hire people, have people working under us, people that we manage, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, in today's age, it's sometimes hard to find a person who can do a good job with competence and do it well and uh, keep doing it for quite a while. And so those of you in management positions, you have to evaluate employees at times, don't you? If you own a business, you have to evaluate employees. And you realize sometimes it's hard to find the right person, to do the right job in the right place. And, and so sometimes your job evaluations are not good. So you can Google up job evaluations. Quite interesting. Uh, here are some job evaluations, actual job evaluations. Since my last report, this employee has reached rock bottom and shows sign of starting to dig. <laughs> Anybody work with somebody like that? Anybody resemble... No, don't, don't raise your hand. Uh, if you give him a penny for his thoughts, you'd get some change. Wow. Um, got a full six-pack but lacks the plastic thingy to hold it all together. <laughs> you know that guy, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Just can't get his thoughts together. Here's one. Uh, got into the gene pool while the lifeguard wasn't watching. Uh, actual job evaluation by a boss. How did I see that on your evaluation? And, and here's another one. I wouldn't allow this employee to breed. <laughs> Wow. Fortunately, the disciples had uh, better candidates than that. They had better candidates to choose from. The problem is Judas has betrayed the Savior. They need to replace him. And when he has a question of why did they need to replace him, who they replace him with, and how did they pick his replacement? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the, the why and the who and the how. And uh, take a look at it. all takes place in a prayer meeting, actually. And so we're going to see who's in that prayer meeting. We're going to see who attended prayer meeting. We're going to see who showed up when it was time to pray. And so look at who's coming to prayer meeting. Beginning in verse 12, it says they returned to Jerusalem, and they did that because Christ told them to. If you back all the way up to verse 4, it says, Gathering them together, this is chapter 1, verse 4, Gather them together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait For what the father had promised that is the coming of the holy spirit so what we find in acts chapter one is the disciples are now in the waiting mode they're in the waiting mode they've gone back to jerusalem they've been with christ on the mount and, and, and he says to them go to jerusalem and wait so they're at the mount of olives the mount of olives is just across the kidron valley from jerusalem a sabbath day's journey away a sabbath day's journey according to the rabbinical tradition was three quarters of a mile you won't find that as a biblical mandate but the rabbis wanted to determine how much walking was considered work so they took some old testament passages extrapolated them into something they could obey instead a sabbath day's journey is about three quarters of a mile so uh, they're on the mount of Olives and they're headed to jerusalem they're they're waiting is what they're doing they're waiting He says, I want you to go and I want you to wait. I want you to wait. Um, That's got to be hard. I I mean, Jesus has just left them for a second time. First time was his death, now through his ascension. He's left them. And and, and he's gone to the Father and he said, I want you to wait. I I want you to go there and I want you to wait. You know what the Greek word for wait means? Guess. That's exactly right. Wait. It's exact. I, I, I tried to find something else. I, I, that's what it means. It means to go and to wait. I'm glad that I was not part of the discipleship band at this point in time. I, I mean, they've just experienced seeing the resurrected Christ ascend into heaven, and Jesus says, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and I want you to wait. I, I don't want you to go tell people. I don't want you to hit the streets of Jerusalem. I don't want you to form up teams and strategize how to reach Jerusalem. I, I don't want you to go. What I want you to do is wait. I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, if I was there, I'd want to hit the streets. I'd want to organize the guys and say, you guys take this sector of the city. You take this sector of the city. And we're going to have some small groups come back. We'll give a, uh, a report, a debriefing after to tell what's happened in the streets. When we tell everybody what's happened when we tell them about the resurrected Christ. <clears throat> I mean, how can you wait? That's like telling uh, a couple who's just gotten engaged, don't say anything about it. It's like telling uh, somebody just found out they're going to be grandparents or parents for the first time and say, don't tell anybody you're pregnant. I mean, these guys are excited. By the way, we just found out last week we've got our sixth grandbaby coming. So, you know, the exciting news for us right there. <clears throat> I told them to stop. I can't afford it anymore. They're done. <laughs> Grandkids are more expensive than kids. So, so, so he, he says, I want you to go. I, I don't want you to do anything. I just want you to wait. Go and wait. I'm not good about waiting. Anybody else? Three of us. (laughs) I'm waiting for you to raise your hand. I'm going to wait real long. I'm telling you right now. There you go. I mean, I'm not good at waiting. I, I'm not good at waiting at uh, 31st and the loop at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm not really good at waiting. I, I'm not good at waiting in line at Walmart and HEB. I mean I mean, I, you know, I, I'm thinking, why don't you get more people here? You know when the rush hour is going to be and, and then you get in line behind somebody and they're going to write a check, but they don't even get their check out of their purse and checkbook out of their purse until everything has rung up. And I'm saying, you're a TBCer. You know I'm impatient. We've been talking. This happened this week. Go ahead and get your checkbook out and start writing the check. You can fill it in later, right? Amen. amen? There we go. Swallowed my own word right there. I mean, most of us don't like to wait, especially when there's something exciting to talk about. I mean, you know, what about the crew? You got some things to talk about over there? Y'all won a football game yesterday, didn't y'all? You don't hear Longhorn say anything today, do you? not have anything to talk about. You guys, you, win the t- you, you lose the toss, and UCLA defers the second half, and you kick? You guys read about that? Never make fun of an Aggie again the rest of your life if you're a long arm. That's crazy. Anyway, that's a whole different topic for another day. Not in the book of Acts, but it was on my mind. He says, wait. Some of the best advice I can give to some of you right now is to wait. Wait on the engagement. Wait for the job change. Wait before you take off and do that ministry so you can get prepared. Just wait. And it's hard to wait. It's hard to wait. Well, the disciples are on uh, the Mount of Olives. Uh, Richard Hendricks says this about waiting. Second only to suffering, waiting may be the greatest teacher and trainer in godliness that most of us ever encounter. You're waiting. Delay never thwarts God's purpose. Rather, polishes. polishes. God's instruments never thwarts his purposes it polishes his instruments when we wait well the Mount of Olives uh, is where this guy is standing as a orthodox Jewish man in Jerusalem modern-day picture he's looking upon uh, a more recent wall you can see the dome of the rock over here which is a muslim shrine and just to the left would be the temple mound temple area and uh it's about it's about a half a mile from where he's standing to over there we've walked that several times over the last decade or so on trips to israel and uh he's saying there's sabbath there are at mount of olives where this guy's standing and uh, you're going to walk across and uh, that's where they're going to go to the upper room notice in your bible it says the upper room you see it there Look at the scripture. It says the upper room. It's articular. That means the article is there. The is the article. It's a specific upper room. We don't know which upper room that is, but obviously they did. It could be the upper room that they went to. Uh, for the last Passover it could be the upper room they went to after the crucifixion when they were all scared to death and they're hiding in Jerusalem or maybe it's the upper room that they went to for the prayer meeting in Acts chapter 12 if you remember that story in Acts chapter 12 Peter's in prison the first century church is praying for Peter to be broken out of prison and it says they gathered in the upper room of John Mark's mother her name was Mary so we're not, we're not sure which upper room it is but obviously they did know which one it was and so uh, they are waiting in the upper room. It must be a large upper room. Here's an idea of what an upper room looked like in that day and age. Uh, It must have been a large upper room because there are 120 people meeting in that upper room. And so upper rooms were important for a number of reasons. First of all, you were not an eye shot from everybody walking on the streets below. You were not within earshot of those that were there. You could have privacy. It was a place, sometimes an open solarium, sometimes it was closed. It was more like a living room that we would have today where you would go and you would uh, recline as a family, be together, or have people in. So this is the concept of what it looked like and where they would be. And so Luke tells us, uh, as the author of Acts, that uh, they're in the upper a specific upper room where they have gathered. Now look at the group of folks who are there. In verse 13, the disciples are there. The disciples are there. There's a list of the 11 disciples that are remaining, um, and, and uh, th- they are there. And then in verse 14, it says, not only did they gather, but they prayed. They gathered and they prayed, and when they prayed, they were of one mind. So there's gathering, there's praying, and there's unity. Gathering, praying, and unity. Specifically, he says, not only were the disciples there, but in the end of verse 14, th- there were the women, there was Mary, the mother of Jesus, and there were his brothers. There were the women, and it shows the value of women in the ministry of Jesus from the first, uh, from the first uh, disciples on, and there's also Mary, his mother, and his brother. I think it's highly significant that Mary is there and his brothers are there. Gary, why is it significant? It's significant for a number of reasons. First of all, Mary is not being prayed to, but Mary is praying. Mary is not receiving worship. Mary is worshiping. Mary is to be respected and honored. In the evangelical church, I think uh, our uh, response towards Catholicism, where these things take place, oftentimes we diminish the role of Mary. Mary is to be respected. Mary is to be honored. But Mary is not to be worshipped, and Mary is not to be prayed to. And I said, Gary, why not? Well, because we do have one that we are to pray to. We have a Savior who has given his life and who sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Why would you pray to dead saints? Why would you pray to any other person when you have Jesus himself to mediate for you? Mediator is one who goes between you, and he says we have a mediator that is Christ Jesus. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. An advocate is one who intercedes, and the intercessor is Jesus Christ. Christ the righteous one Christ Jesus who died more than that was raised to life and what happened when he ascended he ascended to the right hand of the father and what does he do there he intercedes for us so we know where Christ went after the ascension he went to the presence of the father he sits at his right hand and we know what the savior does for us he intercedes for us daily in the presence of the father and so we have a savior that we can turn to we have a savior we can go to we have a savior that we can pray to <coughs> Excuse me. So Mary was a sinner in need of a Savior. Her son became her Savior. She exalted her son, her Savior. She's to be respected. She is to be honored, but she is not to be worshiped. Uh, by the way, this is the last time Mary is mentioned in the Scriptures. She's not mentioned in the Epistles or any later on in Acts. We're not sure if uh, she passed away or she's just not a significant uh, person when it came to the early church. It's also significant that the brothers of Jesus were there. If you look in your Bible, the end of verse 14, Mary was there and his brothers were there. It's significant for two reasons. And it's surprising they were there. How many of you have older brothers? Raise your hand. You've got an older brother? Uh, would you know if that older brother was a sinner or not? Not a trick question. You know, don't you? You know. I am the older brother in my family. I've got two sisters. They can tell you Gary DeSalvo is a sinner, and they can give you example after example after example of what it was like to grow up with me. I was. and uh, And I still am. Still am. And so the brothers of Christ, if anybody would have known that Jesus was not truly the Son of God, it would have been his bros. It would have been the guys who grew up with him. It would have been the guys who lived with him every day. But yet you find them in a prayer meeting waiting for the power of the Spirit to come upon them. Now, why is this so significant and surprising? It's because early on they didn't look at Jesus that way. Early on they didn't see their brother that way. In the book of Mark, after Jesus had confronted the Jewish leadership, it says his family heard about this and they went to take charge of him because they said he's out of his mind. I mean, his brothers saying, Jesus is crazy. I mean, he's gone after the Jewish leaders of that day. He's going to get us all killed. And so early on in Mark, the the brothers did not follow Jesus. In fact, they said he's crazy. So what happened between Mark chapter 3 and Acts chapter 1? What happened? Those brothers, those brothers who lived with Christ, saw their brother Jesus resurrected from the dead. And whenever you stand in the presence of a resurrected man, your life changes. And nail the brothers in a prayer meeting waiting for Jesus and the power of the Spirit to come upon them. Not only that, these brothers of Christ, these disciples of Jesus, one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection, the changed lives of these disciples. They would ultimately give their lives for the Savior. You don't die. You don't die for someone who's a farce. You don't die for someone who's a fool. And you don't die for someone who's not real. The early Christians did not believe in the resurrection of Christ because they couldn't find his dead body. They believed because they found the living Christ. That's why they believed. Well, we know who was at prayer meeting, so what was happening at this prayer meeting? We know who was there, so... What's happening at the prayer meeting? Well, what happened was they realized there was a need for another apostle. There's a need for another apostle. First of all, the scriptures say it. You, you read in, in verse 20, it says, his office let another man take. And so uh, David, writing on the inspiration of the Spirit, says, I want you to know that uh, there needed to be another apostle to take place. By the way, here's a quick lesson on bibliology. Bibliology is a study of the Bible. Uh, look at verse 16 with me. Behold, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. So people question, is this really the inspired Word of God? Well, verse 16 is a commentary on that. It talks about the dual authorship of the Scriptures. Look at it. It says, David, the Holy Spirit, rather, foretold by the mouth of David. So you've got the dual authorship of the Scriptures. You've got the Spirit of God speaking to David. So what you hold in your hand is the Word of God, which is given to men of God, by the Spirit of God. So you have human men who wrote down on papyrus. They wrote down that which the Spirit of God gave to them. So you have the Spirit of God giving to godly men the Word of God, which you now hold in your hands. That's how we get the inspired Word of God. That's bibliology. We love the Word of God of Temple Bible Church. We love the living Word. We love the written word because the written word points us to the living word. We don't worship this book that's bibliolatry, but we worship the one who this book is about. But this book is the inspired word of God given to us. And here it talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit gave to David, a human author, that which we hold in our hands, which is called The scriptures. And so we see here that Peter takes charge. He stands in front of the group and says, We've got a problem. The scriptures say that we need to replace Judas. Not only that, but Jesus has said this too. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, yet you, would have fo- who, who, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So you might ask yourself, well, they had eleven guys. Isn't eleven enough? I mean, you've got eleven guys to go out and uh, become the, the, the start of the church. So why do you have to have a twelfth guy? Well, in verse 20, it tells us because to fulfill Scripture. Secondly, to fulfill the words of Christ himself. Christ said there would be 12 and sitting on the throne of the thrones. And thirdly, there's something called the millennial kingdom. That's when Christ will sit on his glorious throne. And in that kingdom, there won't be 11 disciples judging the tribes of Israel, but there will be 12. So they had to pick a 12th guy to fulfill the words of Christ and to rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. You know, one of the tragedies of this section is Judas. Just a tragedy. Judas had feet that walked close to the Savior, but a heart that lagged behind. Judas went as far as the gates of the kingdom, but he never walked through that gate. There are a lot of people like Judas. There are a lot of people at TBC like Judas. not that you're a betrayer, but you've walked next to the Savior, you've walked close to the Savior... You're here week after week. You go to Bible studies, whatever else. But do you really know the Savior? One of the great joys of baptism is hearing testimony of folks. When you hear the testimony of some of those folks, they'll say, hey, I was in church for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Finally, I came to know Jesus. Scriptures tell us in one of the parables, the wheat and the tares, that it's not until the time of harvest, that is a time of judgment, that we'll be able to differentiate between the wheat and the tares. There are people that look like, taste like, feel like, smell like, Believers, but they truly don't know Jesus. Do you? Do you? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Do you know him personally? Biggest decision you'll ever make in life. Eternity hangs in the balance. Judas saw all the miracles. Judas even performed miracles. But Judas never came to faith in the Savior. The qualifications, as I told you, there are two qualifications. Look at verse 22. They had to be with them from the beginning, and they had to be witnesses of the resurrection. So to be an apostle, that needed to take place. That limited the number of people who were qualified candidates. I mean, limited. You had to be with, look at verses 21 and 22, to be an apostle, one of the 12, you had to be with them from the time that John began to baptize until that day, until the time he ascended. So they follow that with, uh, so you've got the why, the why is to replace Judas. You've got the, the who, and that is somebody who's been with them since the time of John the Baptist, uh, baptizing all the way to the ascension. So then you get the what, or, 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 or the, the how, rather. How are you going to pick them? Well, you look for qualified candidates. There are only two of them, only two of them, a guy named Joseph, a guy named Matthias. A guy named Joseph, a guy named Matthias. So you get two equally qualified candidates for the job. Two equally qualified. How do you determine the will of God? How do you know the will of God? Let me make that personal to you. How do you determine the will of God in your life? How do you determine what your major is going to be? Who your roommate's going to be next semester or next year? How do you determine what specialty you're going to choose if you're a medical student? How do you determine which house you're going to live in? How do you determine who to marry? How do you determine if you should move or not move? If you should take that job, not take that job? How do you do that? How do you determine the will of God? If you look what they did, first of all, they found qualified Jesus, or God had given them what the qualifications were, and so the first thing they did was found qualified candidates. The second thing they did was what? What would they do in verse 24? What would they do? Pray. Makes sense, doesn't it? You want to know what God's will is? God, I'm asking you to tell me. And so they pray, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show us which one of these two you've chosen. So God, show us who it is that you would have do that to take Judas's place. Next thing they did is they cast lots. And you're thinking, what? So you got two equal candidates. Now, some of you are thinking casino and crop table. That's not what we're talking about here. I mean, you've only got two guys. They're both qualified. They meet the qualifications. Probably what they did is they took two tiles. They marked one of the tiles in a certain way, and maybe they rolled both of them out, or maybe they'd roll one out. We're not sure how they did it, but uh, they cast lots to do that. And In the Old Testament, they did that oh, they did that on occasion. Not all the time, but on occasion. Proverbs says, a lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. This is the last time lots are ever cast in the Scriptures. Why? Why? I mean, why don't we go around casting lots today? Wouldn't it be a whole lot easier to determine the will of God if we just said, okay, Lord, these are my three choices. Uh, there are three tiles in the back. I'm going to grab one. That's your will. I did that once, actually. It was, worked out pretty well. We were... Uh, remember when Krispy Kreme donuts first came out? <laughs> remember that? They, they were the, the biggest craze around. I'm not a donut either, but I said, I want to try a Krispy Kreme donut. And they had a place in Round Rock. You remember that? I don't think it's there anymore. And Every time we drive down the interstate, man, that parking lot would be packed. And so I'm headed to Austin one time. I'm without Bev because I'm with Bev. She's not going to let me stop and get a Krispy Kreme donut. So so we're headed down to Austin. And uh, so as we head down to Austin, I pull off on the exit. And I said, Lord, if it's your will, let there be a parking place in the front of that room. Sure enough, the seventh time around the block. (laughs) How do you determine the will of God? How do you do it? Let me give you four principles. You can write them down or they'll be online on our website tomorrow afternoon and you can get them off of the PowerPoint. First of all, where, how to determine the will of God? Where God commands, we must obey. Okay, first principle. When God commands, we obey. If God says it, we're to do it. Don't come to me and say, Pastor Gary, I'm falling in love The only problem is she's an unbeliever. Is it okay for me to marry her? The answer is no. God has said don't be unequally yoked. So why would you ask me to do that which violates the will of God? Why would you do that? So here's what the scriptures say. Here are a few things. It is God's will. You want to know what God's will is? Here it is. It spells out. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that is, that you should mature spiritually that you should avoid sexual immorality, literally, so you should avoid pornea. It's a very broad Greek word. Pornea is, it means any type of sex outside of marriage. So you want to know what God's will is? God's will is for you to be pure to your marriage only. That's it, period. So Pastor Gary, is it okay for me to look at pornography? No, it's not. Is it okay for me to sleep with the girl that I'm dating right now, or the guy I'm dating No, it's not. Uh, and... Go on, you can take that to whatever you want. That's God's will. Here you go, here's another one. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So your heart is to be filled with thanksgiving at all times if you want to do the will of God. Pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, it spells it out. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is what? God's will. So there it is right there, heart filled with thanksgiving. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Man that comes to me and says, I don't love my wife anymore, never did, should never married her. I look at him and say, too bad. God commanded it. You're to obey it. That's your wife. You love her. This is not about an emotion. This is about a volitional decision you are to make in your mind. Your heart will follow. You go love your wife. The uh, scriptures say this, bear with one another and forgive one another. Bear with one another forgive one another. Any of you as a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. You come to me and say, I just can't forgive that person. You have no idea what that person did to me. You have no idea how they disrespected me. You have no idea, no idea, no idea. All I can say is think about how much you've been forgiven in Christ. You are to forgive other people. That's God's will for your life, period. Period. Yeah, don't come argue with me. Go argue with God argue with God where there is where there's a command we are to obey where there's no command we're morally free we're morally free I got up and put on a blue shirt last night actually what I did is uh, I I chose it last night I'm pretty obsessive about that I've got a little list the shirts and pants I wear on Sunday so I wear the same thing week after week and so I put it on my little list, and uh, I didn't have this outfit on last week because it was on my little list that I didn't wear it last week. I'm sick. <laughs> Bev says what? There's medicine for that. Yeah. Um, is God really concerned about the color of your blouse or shirt today? I don't think so. I don't think so think you could have picked 10 outfits on he doesn't care you're either going to go to a restaurant or you're going to go home today is god really concerned about the way you drive the, not he is concerned about the way you drive <laughs> <clears throat> all kind of teenagers writing me this week thank you pastor gary we can drive how we want um but he's not concerned about the the way you get there you're morally free you're morally free um says this, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. When you're morally free, you do it to his glory. You make choices to his glory. In the area of freedom, you must use godly wisdom. In the area of freedom, use godly wisdom. Let me give you an example. I believe the scriptures teach that drunkenness is sin. I don't believe the scriptures teach that drinking alcohol is sinful. So I have freedom to indulge in alcohol if I desire. If I go to dinner with someone in Austin and uh, I find out that that person struggles with alcohol or struggles with their pastor ever in alcohol, they 're an alcoholic. I 'm not going to exercise my freedom and have a glass of wine with my meal. I'm not going to do it. Sometimes we need to limit our freedom. And we do that in deference to other people, to weaker brothers. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your pathways. And so what we're to do when God commands, we obey. Where there's no command, we're morally free. In the area of freedom, we use godly wisdom, and we place everything in the sovereign hands of God. In James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, it says, Come now, those of you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to do such and such business in such and such a city, which you should say, if the Lord wills, we will. See, here's what I see in our culture, in our society. What we enthrone is common sense and intellect. And so what we do is we make our decisions and we say, God, come and bless it. We've been good boys and girls. We've got common sense and we're bright. So come and bless us. Rather than saying, Lord, what is your will? God, you know the man we should choose Show us who it is. God, you know the man or woman I should marry. God, you know the dorm I should live in. God, you know the job I should take. God, you know the career path I should follow. God, you know the ministry I should go into. God, you know who I should reach out and care to. God, show me your will. That's what we're to be about. You know, when you look at Acts chapter 1... The disciples are the same men, but they're living different lives. They're the same men in the Gospels, but now they are living different lives because whenever you come in contact with the resurrected Savior, your life changes. They went from cowards to being courageous, they went from running to waiting. They went from doubting to worshiping. Why? Because they'd been in the presence of the resurrected Savior. If your life has not changed, you don't have new attitudes, new thoughts, new desires, new hopes, new dreams, maybe it's because you hadn't been in the presence of the resurrected Savior. Because if you have... You can't walk away from the Lion of Judah and stay the same. Father, as we look at this example of these men, our desire is to be different. Our desire is to live differently. Our desire is to honor you with all our lives. So, Father, today, today we ask you to search our hearts, to know us, to let us be changed, to let us be different as a result of being the presence of the resurrected Savior. If you don't know Christ as Savior, I invite you to study the resurrection. Look at it. If he's alive, it's a game changer. If you know the Savior, I pray your life totally different than the way it was. In the name of Jesus.